0: He selected Philip and he said, Philip, I want you to follow me. And Philip began to follow Jesus. And he was so taken with Jesus that he had a good friend of his that lived a distance from Nazareth, where Jesus was living. And he went to Bethesda, which was his hometown, and he found a good friend of his named Nathaniel. And Nathaniel was sitting there underneath a fig tree. And Jesus walked up, excuse me, Philip walked up to Nathaniel and he said, Nathaniel, I want you to go with me. To Nazareth. I want you to meet a guy in Nazareth named Jesus. He's changed my life. And Nathaniel sat there under his fig tree and he looked at Philip and he said, Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, You just need to come and see. And so Nathanael went to Nazareth and he met Jesus. And as he was walking up to Jesus, Jesus looked at him, and Jesus said, Here's an Israelite in whom is no guile. And Nathanael, I saw you when you were underneath the tree. And Nathanael said, you knew that about me? You must be the son of God. And Jesus and Nathanael begin a lifelong journey together. Now, if you had come up to Nathanael years later and asked Nathanael, how did you become a follower of Jesus You would not have heard Nathanael say, well, I did this and I did that and I did the other. What you would have heard Nathanael say is, Jesus left heaven and came to this earth. Jesus encountered a friend of mine and so impacted his life that he commissioned him and he came to Bethesda. And there was something that I can't explain, but now I understand it was the power of God and the work of the Spirit of God that caused me to get up from underneath that fig tree and make my way to a place that I didn't want to go to meet a man I really didn't want to meet, to have an encounter I hadn't planned on having when I got up that morning. But when I got there and I met him, he changed my life and I've been following him ever since. You see, God was drawing Nathaniel to himself. And if we're going to come to Jesus, Jesus and know Him and love Him and walk with Him, it is because the Spirit of God, working with the Word of God, draws us to Him. How does God work in our lives to draw us to Him? Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 6. John's Gospel, chapter 6, we're going to begin with verse 41 there. John's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning with verse 41. The story that we're going to look at here of the teaching takes place about a year prior to the crucifixion. There are very popular expectations of Jesus that are literally flowing all through Israel. Israel was suffering under the domination of the Roman Empire, and the people had come to desire and want so badly a political Messiah, one that would come and overthrow the Roman Empire and would return Israel to its former glory. And there were many hopes and expectations that the power that Jesus was demonstrating would eventually be averted to accomplish those political military objectives. Jesus begins to feed people and he performs miracles as he feeds people. In fact, prior to this story, Jesus goes out with a crowd of about 5,000 people and he takes several fish and several loaves of bread and he prays over and he begins to pass them out and he feeds this whole crowd to the place that they are full. And in those days in the Middle East, to be full was the exception to the rule because there was always a scarcity of food, it seemed, and people walked around with a gnawing sense of hunger in their stomachs. And Jesus does that that day, and they are just so impressed with Him. And so they decide that they're going to go back ...on another day and meet Jesus and maybe Jesus will perform another miracle of feeding folks. And they've also decided that because of the power that Jesus is demonstrating... ...they're going to take him and they're going to make him their king. Caesar will no longer be their king. Herod will no longer be their king. Jesus is now going to become their king because they have made him their king... ...and because Jesus is going to be the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Meeting their expectations... And Jesus meets them in the road, and he says, I've come to be the bread of life. And they basically look at Jesus like, we're not interested in you being the bread of life. We want some physical bread. Jesus said, God has sent me here to be the bread of life. We don't want bread of life. We want you to be our conquering Messiah who's going to overthrow the Roman government. We're going to make you king. Jesus says, no, you're not because I'm getting ready to disappear. So you can't even have the opportunity to make me king. And as they begin to digest what Jesus is saying and how he's not living up to their expectations and he's not fulfilling what they want him to become, they begin in mass to decide Jesus isn't such a great person after all. They don't want to follow him after all. And then to make matters worse, most of those who have claimed to be his disciples begin to decide we don't want to follow him because he's not setting us up for the success that we thought he was going to set set us up for. And Jesus is now down to 12 disciples. Not a very impressive place to be at after two years of public ministry. And in that context, Jesus begins to teach. Let's look at verse 41 of John's Gospel, chapter 6. So the Jews grumbled about Jesus because he said, I am the bread of bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know? In other words, this guy's a nobody, we, we know Him. He's just the son of Joseph and Mary. How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. And I will raise Him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be all taught by God. Everyone who has heard And learn from the Father comes to me. Uh, Back to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. My sermon outline is contained as an insert in your bulletin. I invite you to follow along. Now, I made a little bit of changes in my outlines now. They've got some blanks in there. So don't go to sleep because you'll miss how you can fill out what's in the blanks. (laughs) First of all, we see in this passage that God takes the initiative in our salvation. He makes the first move, and He does so without asking for our permission. Notice what Jesus says in verse 44. He says, No one comes can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. What Jesus is doing here is he is distinguishing between a group of folks who had said they were his followers and who were simply following because they wanted him to meet their expectations of a political, military-style Messiah who would overthrow the power of Rome, put them into power, and also that he would make sure that they had a nice big meal to eat every day. He was going to meet their expectations, and he was going to be the man that they wanted in that hour. And that is not following him. Jesus says, you can't follow me unless the Father draws you. And unless the Father draws you, you're not going to be my follower. So coming up with your reasons and that I meet your expectations is not going to work. The Father has to draw you if you're going to come to me. And the Father takes the initiative to come to us. Now, Jesus says no one can come unless the Father draws him. The word draw there means that you draw someone, but you also encounter in that drawing process resistance, some type of resistance. In fact, the word in Greek can even mean a strong and violent opposition of the will. This word draw is used in the New Testament to speak of drawing a net, that is heavily laden with fish to shore, and so you encounter a lot of resistance in trying to get the net to shore. It was used of Paul and Silas being drugged by the magistrates into the jail. It speaks of being drawn by moral power. And this is what Jesus is trying to say here. You can't come to me unless the Father draws you, but when the Father begins to draw, he is going to encounter opposition. He is going to counter sometimes steep, strong, tough opposition. You see, when the Spirit of God begins to work on us and begins to lead us and guide us and draw us to Jesus, our natural inclination is to fight back and to push back and to resist and to say, I don't want Jesus, and I don't want to follow him, just like Nathaniel under that fig tree, can anything good come out of Nazareth, can Jesus do anything worth a flip for me, I don't want to bother him, we all, when God begins to initially draw us to himself, we resist his pull, and he has to really work on us, and drag us, and pull us to himself, that is the tenacity of his love, that he stays with it, and he stays at it, even though we are resisting him, as he tries to bring us to himself. Aren't you glad he didn't give up on us? He says the father draws because your natural, our natural inclination is to say no, Jesus. I don't want you. Our natural inclination is to say, I love my sin. I love my disobedience. I love the way I'm living my life. But you know something? The more God draws, the more miserable we tend to become. Because we're in a struggle, a tug of war with God. And God is pulling us. God is calling us. God is drawing us. And we're saying no. And we're saying no. But then on the other side of that drawing, there is this strange attraction in us that begins to grow for Jesus. There is the power of who he is. There is the glory of what he is. And so while we on the one hand are resisting him, there's another side of us that say, man, he looks like he's got answers to questions that I've got. He looks like he has power that I desperately need. He looks like he has cleansing that I cannot get myself clean of the sin that I'm struggling with. He looks like he's got power to set me free from bondage, that all I seem to do is get into even more bondage. Now, notice how Jesus says the Father works with us. He creates within us what I like to call the true listening ear, where we begin to listen to him, not just to hear his words, where we begin to listen to say, I want to learn from you, Lord, and I want to obey what you teach me. Verse 45, Jesus says that he draws us how, as we are taught by God. He works with us in this drawing to teach us, to teach us his word, to teach us through the life of Jesus, through the words of Jesus. He teaches us through the word of God. Let me say this to you, folks. When you and I go on mission projects and we share in our daily life, any opportunity God gives us to share from the Word of God, we are often tempted to look at those that we share with and think, well, this isn't getting anything accomplished. But Jesus promises here in verse 45 that He will take His Word and He will use His Word to teach people with. Our job is simply to put the Word of God out there. It is His job to take the Word and accomplish with with what he wants to on his schedule. Our job is not to make the word effective. He said he'd do that. Our job is simply to put the word of God out there for folks. Verse 45, he enlightens our mind to know the truth of the word of God. And he does that through the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God comes alongside the Word of God and takes the Word of God to accomplish three basic objectives. First of all, the Bible says that He convicts of sin, number one, of righteousness, number two, and of judgment, number three. He convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit of God, using the Word of God, draws us to the Father because He begins to identify in our lives specific areas of disobedience and sin and places where we need to get right with God. That is not enjoyable. We don't enjoy it. We push back. We don't want to hear it. But that is the first step of freedom as He begins to say, this area of your life needs to change. This area of your life is out of alignment with the Lord. This area of your life needs to be changed by me. He convicts of sin. Secondly, he convicts of righteousness. He holds up a standard, the standard of his word, the standard of the Ten Commandments. He holds up the standard of his word. And when we look at that standard, we realize what we've got to change to become like in order to follow him. I don't know if you've ever had this experience or not, but you go and you take your Bible and you open your Bible and you're looking forward for this nice, comforting, warm experience with the Bible. And you begin to read and all of a sudden you start feeling uneasy. Because there are things that we begin to read that make us feel uneasy. And well, I wouldn't plan it on this being an uneasy, uncomfortable encounter with the word of God. But that's part of him giving us the standard of how we're to live. Of convictions of sin, of righteousness, and then of judgment. And that's the idea that we are accountable to him. We are accountable to him this side of heaven. We are accountable to him on the other side of eternity. And again, we don't get particularly enthralled about Being accountable. Scriptures teach about the reality of an eternity without Him in hell. That's accountability. The fear of the accountability before God. But he says that the Father draws us. The work of the Spirit of God is immediate. It is spiritual in nature. It is supernatural. And what God does is He enables us to understand His Word. So maybe some of you here this morning, and God has been taking His Word, and He's been taking people, and He's been taking circumstances and situations, and He's been working in your heart, and He's been working in your mind, and there's been that conviction, I need to change in this area of my life. I need to get right with God in this area of my life. I've got a relationship in my life that doesn't please Him. There's a sin, there's a habit in my life that needs to get straightened out. God has been working on you and convicting you, and the natural idea is for us to resist and for us to push back. But what we need to recognize is the reason we're experiencing that conviction, that uncomfortableness, is the Spirit of God is working with us. He's drawing us. We are resisting, perhaps, the drawing, but He is drawing us. Now part of that drawing is the struggle we have in faith. Because you see, the folks that were looking at Jesus when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and they looked at Jesus and they said, you know, we can believe you to be a political messiah. We can believe you to fill our stomachs, but we just can't believe, bring ourselves to believe you, Jesus, for who you say you are. How could you have come down from heaven? We watched you grow up. You're Mary's son. You're Joseph's son. You grew up in Nazareth, and you're saying you're coming from heaven. How can we believe that you can feed our souls? How can you and I believe that Jesus Christ can do anything that Jesus says he can do? Now, let me share this with you. You and I do not have the capacity in and of ourselves to believe. So stop stressing On trying to believe. Because if you try to force yourself into belief and talk yourself into belief and work yourself into belief, it's not going to happen because believing in Him is ultimately a supernatural happening. That's the reason He gave us the Holy Spirit of God. That's part of the drawing that the Spirit of God works within us to enable us to believe. He gives us the gift of faith. What I need to do instead of trying to work myself into belief is say, Lord, by the power of the Spirit of God, would you help me to do what I can't do? There was a guy that came to Jesus one day that needed healing. And Jesus looked at him. And he says, I can do all kinds of things in your life. And I love how that guy responded. He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love that story because the guy acknowledged before Jesus, I don't know how to believe in you. I don't have the faith necessary to get the miracle that I need. All of us are in the same boat with that guy. Lord, I believe, but my belief is too impressive but would you be willing to help my unbelief? And Jesus didn't look at the guy and say, you sorry, no good for nothing, rascal. You've seen me. You've listened to me. You ought to be able to believe. Jesus looked at the guy and basically said, I'll come alongside of you. I will help you believe. And that's what the work of the Spirit of God is in drawing us. So the next time you and I reach a place of a struggle of faith, Lord, I don't know how to believe my way to you. I don't know how to believe to get this to you, but Lord, you help my unbelief. You enable me. You empower me to believe. And that's why He gives us the Spirit. Now, Jesus draws us also with a promise. Jesus says in the 44th verse here, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and then notice the second half of the verse, and I will raise him up on the last day. And I will raise him up on the last day. Three times In this passage of scripture, in this discourse, Jesus says, I will raise him up. I will raise you up at the last day. That's my promise. He says it three times. Now, if Jesus says something one time, it's important. If Jesus says it two times, you really need to pay attention. If Jesus says it three times, he is really emphasizing it. I will raise you up at the last day. So he says, I'm going to draw you to myself. And then he says, I'm going to raise you up at the last day. But what in the world is he talking about when he says, I'm going to raise you up at the last day? Well, let's look at several passages of Scripture. If you'll turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. Now, when Jesus says, I will raise you up in the last day, several things are involved in that. Number one, we need a raising. Number two, he and he alone has got the power to do, to carry out this raising that he is talking about. And three, he's promising that he will raise us up at the last day. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What Paul says, first of all, in teaching the church at Corinth is that this raising that he's talking about, when he raises us up in the last day, that is when Jesus comes again, that the promise of that raising is interwoven with Jesus' own resurrection. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, past tense, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or who have died but in fact christ who has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep now they lived in an agrarian society and the first fruits simply meant this that whatever came on the vine first was a promise of what was coming on the vine When I was growing up as a kid, and we used to visit the relatives down in Gretna, they used to have what they call early garden. Early garden meant you knew you were going to have a late garden. Because the early garden was a promise that the soil was good, and the weather was decent, and there was more coming. The first fruits are the idea that what comes out first is a guarantee that something is coming. And what Paul is teaching the church at Corinth here is, because Jesus rose from the dead, our being raised is guaranteed by his resurrection. So I look back in history and I see that Jesus was risen from the dead, and therefore he has the power to carry through with his promise that he will raise us someday. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now let's stay in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and begin with verse 51. Drop on down to verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, and this concept of sleep there is for death. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all, I want to circle the word all there, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And what he's describing there, my understanding is this raising up that he's talking about. He says it is a mystery. But we're not going to all sleep. But he says we're all going to be changed. Even for those believers who have died... They too shall be changed. He says it's going to happen in the moment. In the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet. The trumpet of God will sound. Which is his way of letting everybody know. I'm coming again. He says the dead in Christ are going to be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. And then this perishable body that we're living in now. Is going to put on an imperishable body. This mortal body is going to put on immortality. And then death is going to be swallowed up in victory. So when Jesus says, I'm going to raise you up at the last day, and he says it three times, Paul goes over here in Corinthians, and he begins to explain how that's going to happen, when that's going to happen, when Jesus comes again. I want to turn to one last passage. If you'll turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to begin with verse 13. Now as you turn there... You say, well, Pastor, what in the world does the drawing of God have to do with Jesus coming again and raising us up to spend eternity with Him? Every promise that Jesus gives, every work that Jesus done, does one way or the other is always going to be tied to what he is ultimately going to do where he is moving us towards in the future he is always calling us and drawing us not just exclusively to today and tomorrow but to the future that he is preparing for us to live in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning with verse 13 but we do not want you to be ignorant brothers about those who have fallen asleep those who have died that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Let me pause here. The reason Paul is writing this to the church at Thessalonica is that the church at this time, the early church, those first Christians were getting some age on them. They were beginning to see believers die. And the question naturally arose, are we ever going to see them again? Is this the end or is there a future with them? And so Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, He says, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who've fallen asleep or those who've died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe, notice again, he's going to tie what he's going to do with us to what Jesus has already accomplished. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul is saying the day is coming when He will come again. And when He comes again, The dead in Christ, those believers who have died, they will be raised first. The idea is that Jesus will be in the sky and they with the angels will come first and then those of us who are remaining will be caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord and so we will ever be with the Lord. Now, why in the world did he give us this? Because this is, I believe, the raising that he's talking about. But I think the second reason Jesus, excuse me, Paul gave us this to tell us and explain to us what it's going to look like, what it's going to be like, is to live in anticipation of that day. Because that day could be this day. I couldn't think of a better way to end this day than in the clouds with Jesus being reunited. But I can't think of a better way to live my life than to look forward and to live with the anticipation that He's coming back, that His resurrection 2,000 years ago assures us that He is coming back, and that His plan for us in that future, whenever that day is, is that we will be united with Him. That resurrection means that every time we go to a graveside and our tears fall from our faces and we look into that grave of that loved one that we've lost, that knew Jesus and loved Jesus, that it is not forever we will not see them. It is not goodbye. It is just so long till later. It is the idea that... When we get up every morning, we get up looking forward to him and see, folks, one of the reasons that he teaches us this and he draws us to this truth and he calls us to this truth is that if I live my life with this sense that he's coming again and this is what's going to happen when he comes again and I'm going to be united with him, then I know that whatever I'm going through today, that doesn't have to define me. That's not the end of my life, that there's a new day coming, there's a better day coming, and I'm not living for the crud of today. I'm living for my Savior who's coming someday for me that's the idea of what he's trying to give us here it is also the idea that when Satan shows up in my life and he dangles the sin in front of my face and he says this looks good and it smells good and it's going to taste good and you want to get involved in it I can look back at the devil and say Satan let me tell you something I've got a savior who's coming in glory I'm going to be united with him I don't have time for your junk because I've got Jesus and I know Jesus is coming again for me that's what he's calling us to. That's what he's drawing us to. And oh my gracious, we get so wrapped up and involved in all this piddly crud here on this earth. It doesn't matter to a hill of beans compared to that day that we will be with him. I love the way he describes it. The Lord himself, he's not going to delegate this to anybody. We will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of the archangel With the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And then we're going to be caught up together with him in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Whatever separation we know on this earth from loved ones who've known Christ. Is going to seem like a split second. Compared to the eternity of being together with Jesus. During the second world war. When the allied pilots. Would get ready to take off from their bases in Europe they develop a saying I will meet you in the skies over Berlin I will meet you in the skies over Berlin and the reason that they would say that to each other it was their way of saying we're gonna win this and we're gonna be in victory and we're gonna meet each other over Hitler's headquarters Representing the victory, that's assured. Now, the Bible says that Satan is the prince and the power of the air. The prince and the power of the air. And does verse 17 says? Then when we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. To meet who? The Lord in the air. You see, Paul is basically saying to the church at Corinth, listen, when Jesus comes again, he's kicking Satan out of the air. He's not going to be the prince and the power of it anymore because Jesus is going to declare his victory at the very place that Satan said was his headquarters. He draws us with his truth. He draws us to himself with the promise of the future that he's got for us. All of us are like Nathaniel. We're sitting on our, our tree somewhere. And Jesus sends a message. I want to meet with you. I want to change you. And all of us, if we're honest, initially our response to Jesus is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He can't be as good as my sin. He can't be as enjoyable as what I've been doing. Why should I bother to go to him? But he keeps saying, you need to come see him. You need to come see him. You need to come see him. And if we'll get up from our tree... And we'll make a beeline to Jesus and we will encounter him. We'll say like Nathaniel said, you're like none of that I've ever met. And I'm going to follow you. And Jesus looks at us and says, follow me. And someday I'm going to raise you up. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your promise. Thank you that you are drawing us to yourself. Thank you that you came to this earth, died on a cross, rose again from the dead, never bothered to ask our opinion or our permission to do any of it. Because you love us so much and you want us to be in relationship with you. And thank you that you draw us and you convict us. And yes, you will even make us miserable where we are in life until we come to know you, Jesus, because that's how much you want us. And thank you for the power that you have to change our lives. And thank you for that future day, Lord, when you're going to raise us up. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you need to give your life to Jesus and follow him and serve him and love him, as we sing in a moment, I want to invite you to walk from where you are to where I am, say, Pastor, today I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to know Him. I want to serve Him. I want to know the forgiveness of sins. He's been drawing me, and today I want to say yes to Him. If you've made that decision and you need to make it public today, we invite you to come. Every person that Jesus called, He called publicly. I'm not ashamed to say I belong to him and I'm following him. If You're here today and the Lord has been drawing you and speaking to you by becoming part of our church family and joining us here in this journey. We invite you to come. And if you just need to come and kneel around the front, as always, the altar is open. Feel free. Lord God, have your way with us in these moments. Draw us to yourself, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.